How often do you hear about mic drop innovations in radial to peripheral equipment? Here's one. The Sublime Radio Access Platform from Sermotics offers 250-centimeter rapid exchange balloon catheters. That's long enough to reach from the wrist to and through the pedal loop. And their unmatched deliverability ensures they get there. Ready for another mic drop? Sublime guide sheaths are available in lengths up to 150 centimeters in both six and five French platforms. The Sublime portfolio even includes high-performance support catheters in lengths up to 200 centimeters. Getting the picture? The Sublime radio access platform is engineered to make wrist-to-foot access not only possible, but practical. Don't just think radio to peripheral, think wrist-to-foot with the Sublime radio access platform. Visit sublimeradio.com to learn more. This week on the Back Table Podcast. A little dissection is like a little pregnant, right? You have it, you have it. I think every <laughs> ballooning you do causes a dissection. How relevant is it to your flow, to your hemodynamics in your vessel? That's kind of the question. I don't think we have a, an excellent predictor. I think everybody can do the eyeball test and say, ah, that's fine. And a lot of that's based on what time it is of the day, what you got left. You're like, oh, that, that's not significant. That's not flow limiting. I don't know how many people have decided what exactly contributes to flow limiting in some, some kind of like scientific sense. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform or our website. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and keep up with the latest updates and give us feedback through comments. This discussion is supported by Shockwave Medical, developer of intravascular lithotripsy or IVL, which uses sonic pressure waves to fracture superficial and deep cardiovascular calcium. IVL is delivered on a low pressure PTA platform and is indicated for a broad range of interventions from the iliac arteries to the pedal arch, including calcified iliofemoral vessels to facilitate large bore access. Across multiple studies and vessel beds, IVL's intuitive platform and unique mechanism has demonstrated results that are predictably safe, distinctively intuitive, and consistently effective. Learn more at shockwavemedical.com. I'm Sabine Dond in IR in LA, and I'm so happy to welcome back my great friend and interventional radiologist, Dr. Kumar Madassari from Rush in Chicago. Great to be here, Sabine. Oh, yes. You know, Kumar, this will actually be your fourth time back on our show. <laughs> Either you have nothing better to do, or you are a genius at multitasking the thousand things you do for PAD. Or you can't find any suckers willing to emulate themselves on podcasts for us. <laughs> <laughs> No, seriously, man. Thanks for being here. Uh, it's, it's awesome having you back on. And, and I'm stoked to talk more about our topic today, which is going to be, you know, attacking these below the knee, terrible lesions that all of us kind of deal with on a daily basis, treating PAD. Look, we, we've talked about non-invasive imaging, you know, before on, on, on different patients, but is there anything on the non-invasive imaging that kind of gives you a clue as, a, as, as what, how much calcium you're going to see? on angiogram. You know, it's funny. I think, uh, we keep trying to battle this, this clinical workup of these patients. And I think one of the things that we forget to look at is quite often many of these patients just have an x-ray. Uh, a lot of them are patients that come in from wound care. I mean, we do wound care ourselves. We do primary intake and management wound care, but you'd be surprised that if you just happen to look at your patient's chart that you may be getting referred from XYZ and you see they have a foot x-ray because if they're dealing with a foot problem, they've been looking for osteo or early changes. 
and you're going to see the, the diffuse small vessel calcifications throughout the foot or even in the ankle when they're looking at a foot x-ray, you know, they might have an injury. They went to the ER, look at their prior imaging and you'll find these heavy, uh, railroad tracks of calcium. And those are early, uh, non-invasive, a, a beautiful non-invasive idea of how bad things are, even before you look at the falsely elevated ABI and everything else. Ultrasound to some degree can help. CT are tough. We've talked about this before, CTAs. Uh, CTAs inevitably are painful below the knees in many patients, mm -hmm. especially in our patient population in the Midwest. I know you're in very healthy California where everybody surfs oh, yeah. and smiles and says, come <laughs> to California, but here in the Midwest and the rest of the real world, uh, and even in Asia and in, in India of all places, I mean, the CKD diabetic population have horrible calcium. So I think we are still lacking in our non-invasive testing of it. But I think if you look at these little subtle ex imaging and stuff that they may already have, and then look at your ultrasounds and CTs, you'll, you'll see how bad it is. Yeah. I'm always surprised, you know, most of my patients, you know, yes, the healthy swimmers for sure. They're, you know, the surfers, they're, they're, they're coming in for CLI, CTLI all the time. Right. No, um, you know, I, I'm always surprised to see the degree of calcium on an x-ray or during the angiogram compared to what you see on, you know, an ultrasound, right? Most of our patients probably have a duplex imaging as your workup, right? Are you doing a lot of CTA or MRA before or what? No, that's a good question. I'd love to hear your, but, but for me, uh, honestly, CTA or MRA cross-sectional, I don't usually get it all unless I think we've talked about this is the physical exam alludes to poor femoral pulses or extensive surgeries. You see a lot of scarring, the patient's unsure what's happened. They have a history of a lot of maybe aortoiliac stenting, maybe aortic aneurysms. In those situations, I'll get the cross-sectional because for me, the cross-sectional is for inflow evaluation really only. I'm not using it really for the outflow, which I consider below the knees. So I think that's my value in getting a cross-sectional. It's hard to get patients to stay still enough for an MRI. Many of them, many of them may have, you know, because of the comorbidities, they have pacers, they have all these things that may not be MRA compatible, MRI compatible. A CTA, you know, it's another contrast burden. It's, it's extra cost to the system. Unless I feel it's going to really provide that much information, such as the physical exam tells me or the surgical history, I honestly can't find a good reason to do all of them or do much of that. I don't know. How do you, how do you see it? I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it delays the case too. I mean, if you're trying to get a CTA or MRA, get that patient scheduled then into your suite, uh, unless they're inpatient, yeah. well, some of those say we can get, but it really gives me no info below the knee just because calcium. And then you're like, is that patent yeah. or is it calcium? And then. I mean, you have no clue. What by the, the time, hell you, by is. the time you like bone window it down or window yeah. down, you can't even see the contrast anymore. Yeah. So you're like, I it, don't know what's what here. It is. It's 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 ridiculous. And so you know, and then ultrasound is great, but you get you know maybe three or four images below the knee max. Yeah. And there's no way you're gonna know what you're dealing with. So I think you know, but I do think that ultrasound part we need to get better at understanding how to utilize them more below the knee, below the ankle, and maybe with the ultrasound teams and technology, you know, we have a Jill Somerset doing the yeah. acceleration time that requires a high level of skill in Absolutely. ultrasound knowledge and operation to really understand what you're doing. Cause you know, what she teaches and what, what I'd like to bring in for that is just to show how to really value even the plantar arteries, the metatar. I mean, she, yeah. there is things yeah, that can like, be done. I'll never see that. I, I'll be lucky if I get a DP. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I my, think there's a lot more, my... just like we have a lot more to standardize for all of us operators. I think even in the non-invasive technology and the staff, there's a lot we can figure out how to get better information from that. Totally. Now people talk about, I mean, if you read your article and seminars about rock hard calcium and, and conclusions, 
We talk about intimal and medial calcifications. What was the difference between those? Yeah, you know, it's something that's funny. I mean, we talk about calcium all the time. We talk about, okay, I see calcium or I think I see calcium. So I think we have to understand a little bit of histology behind it. Not, not that I sit there and understand, you know, pathology slides, but it's more that if you think about it, the medial artery calcification is the one that seems to be the biggest prevalence in diabetics and the kidney disease, the end-stage renal failure, the chronic kidney disease. That's where you get kind of the railroad track calcium. And that seems to be more prevalent in that patient population, as well as in general, just the elderly. It's just different from sort of what you see in the intimal. That's more of the atherosclerotic, atherosclerotic calcium buildup. That's the ones that you kind of see the plaque ruptures and all that, things like that. But I think the way to think about it is if you have a patient who's diabetic and, and a re renal failure patient, you're going to see those stiffened arteries that are not really obstructive. They're just not compliant. They are not elastic anymore that our artery should be. So I think it's important to understand that when you're dealing with the patient population, our approaches to treating these patients have, you have to keep that in mind. It's not just, you know, there's calcium in the lumen. I got to be careful. It's more of the calcium's in the walls. What can I do to really affect change in that vessel if I want to get a result out of it? Yeah. And do you feel, I know you mentioned in diabetics and, and renal failure patients that medial is more common. Is that, I mean, we do see that tibials are often affected mostly in those patient populations. So you would say most of the tibial calcifications that you deal with are medial. Yeah, I think so. Because yeah. it depends on your patient, uh, your regional or your, your patient population. I mean, mine is going to be diabetics, smokers, and renal failure, usually all three. And then you sprinkle a little bit of coronary artery disease and, you know, maybe something yeah. else into it. But they all seem to have at least two of the five big, you know, components that yeah. cause yeah. that are seen in the, in these patients. So now, you know, you do, you know, you, you get up there, you're doing your angiogram. Is there anything angiographically that can tell you between medial or intimal? Is there any other thing you can do to kind of see what that type of calcification is? Yeah, quite often, you know, I think you'll see when you see the flow patterns on your angiogram, you're going to see how it kind of, you can see either coral reef chunky calcium when you're in the, yeah. the bigger vessels in the bad, the bad, you know, the big arterial disease. And then, you know, also a lot of people now adjunctively use IVUS. Yeah. And IVUS, if you use that, you're going to really see where that calcium is. Is it intimal, luminal? Is it uh, more on the periphery walls? You have a better understanding, but. Yeah. Can you describe it like on IVUS? What do you see? That makes you think it's medial. I mean, you can actually see it on the wall. You know, if you don't want to describe it to our listeners, like how do you see it on IVUS? Yeah, with IVUS, you're going to see the, obviously the shadowing, right? And you're going to see on IVUS, you can see the differential layers of the wall itself. You could see, exactly. are you in the media, the intima, the adventitia, when you're talking about your disease, when you talk about, did you do atherectomy? Did you get too far, you know, out into those spaces? You can delineate those as you do IVUS and you get a better understanding of IVUS. But even just angiographically, you know, you take your, your spot image before you even do your angiogram or you look at your native, you're going to see the calcium. And when you're talking about below the knee, you're going to see the railroad sign, kind of the tramp track calcium. That's your inclination. You, you tie that with the history, you kind of know. Totally. Yeah. And uh, one thing about, I, I agree with the IVUS, you can see all the layers. The only issue I have with IVUS and the tibials, I mean, once you start getting to these tiny tibials, you know, even the O and 4 IVUS, I really don't pretty much can advance it past maybe the proximal third. I mean, it starts getting, even yeah. though it gets stuck. 
I agree. I mean, the question is, what do you need to really get out of it? If you're that yeah. distal, is it going to change your treatment paradigm? Because if you're that distal, you already have problems in the above tibial arteries that you're going to deal with. So worrying about that, that I have a show me that the distal AT into the DP has a problem. You should already be able to tell what you're running into. You know, yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's going to be a game changer for my treatment paradigm. It's more for if I'm trying to differentiate, is this kind of a mixed, you know, fibro fatty? Is it atherosclerotic? Is it as long as it's luminal calcium that I should be very careful about embolization, things like that. I yeah. think that's where the value comes in. True. When I, you know, when I approach these lesions or tibial disease, I think I, I personally put them in two different calcifications, a severely stenotic, you know, heavily calcified lesion and a totally occluded lesion, whether it's short or long. And I, I personally, I approach them differently technique wise. And, and I wanted to kind of talk about both of these approaches with you. Mm-hmm. And, um, I wanted to talk about, okay, you're there, you're, you're, you have your sheath up to the popliteal and, and you've done your angiogram and now you've got a severely stenotic long lesion in the AT. What's your approach, Kamar? What do you, what do you do? I'm talking about wires and, and technique. How, how do you approach that lesion? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think what's most important is going to be your initial angiogram to see what your targets are. If you're talking about. Uh, stenotic versus occlusive. You have to see what your, how bad of the rest of the tibial is. So for me, it's, I have a, usually the longest sheath possible. If my SFA and pop are clean or clean enough, or I've treated already, I want to get something. If I'm going up and over, I want to get at least a 70 centimeter sheath. If I'm dealing with more than one tibial vessel off the bat, I'm going to have a seven French at the minimum, because that way I could plan on kissing tibials or at least more than one tibial from the same axis, even with retrograde. So for me, the longest sheath up to a seven on average, if I'm dealing with more than one vessel, a six is going to cover you for whatever devices you need and, you know, snaring, flossing, but having a seven gives you that extra channel for another O1 for a wire. So once I have my sheath there, usually I take a four French angle catheter just to direct towards whichever vessel I want to get into. If there is a proximal stump, at least that really helps you kind of engage whichever one that you're going, let's say AT to get that early takeoff, if that's a normal variant that you have. And then I switch over right away to an 014 integrate. I, uh, I don't spend any time with the 018 there. I know that I'm dealing with heavy disease, small vessel lumens, micro channels. So I go with an 014. So as soon as I get the 014 through the four French and I switch over to an 014 support catheter, and that could be one of whatever, it depends on the height of the patient. If the patient's above, you know, 5'11", 5'10", whatever, I'm going to switch. I'm going to have a 150 support catheter, centimeter length. Um, Antigrade's always better for these. I do mm-hmm. want to stress that. Unlike California in the Midwest, the pan... I, the pan- <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew, I knew that was coming. <laughs> the panis comes down to the kneecap sometimes, which I will recommend using a panis retraction system, which sounds like an apparatus. It's just really good um, sticky pads and tape that you can get. It's kits and they're whatever, some tech came up with this and developed a company. It's fantastic. I mean, it takes panis all the way up to like their chin. It makes a big yeah. difference because going integrated can be a game changer. Uh, if you have diseased arterial vessels, chances Ooh. are your aerodiliac system may also be diseased and tortuous. Crunchy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. A straight yeah. path is your best path. Totally. The shortest, straightest path. Sorry. So integrated would be much better. In that case, I have like a 45 centimeter sheath up to the pop. Nevertheless, 014 with an 014 support catheter, smaller if I'm integrate, because you don't want the longer the length, the more pushability you lose. So this is uh, yeah. predicated on you for up and over or integrate. So if I've already known what it looks like, I know the inflow is okay. Uh, I prefer to go integrate in these cases. So I have an 014 support with a micro catheter support. And then I try integrate for nowadays, probably 
three to four minutes and there's a wire escalation strategy that everybody kind of needs to get. We talk about this at meetings and in, you know, uh, trainee seminars and stuff. We say, have your own approach. There's, you know, there's numerous wires out there. Many of them adopted from the cardiac space, but now there's more and more wires that we're all comfortable with. Typically I start with a wire that's, uh, soft, hydrophilic, uh, shapeable with good support. And those wires that I use initially tend to be very buggered up pretty fast. But if you have micro channels, they tend to be the best ones to kind of just sneak through something straight. Um, if it's heavily stenotic, um, and I, and I'm trying to get the micro channel, what I do is I get maybe a few millimeters of the wire past the micro catheter, the support catheter tip. And I sometimes push both together if I could see it go. Sometimes you'll find yourself, it acts like a tiny little sphere, I'm sorry, spear. And it it increases the weight of the wire, basically. Correct. You're creating like the, almost like the, the gram tip almost, even these, these are not weighted tip wires. So often I'll try that first, then I'll try to just advance the wire, but you're going to often see these soft shape of wires just kind of become deformed, piggy, you know, curly Q and all that. From there, escalate to maybe more shapeable wires that retain their shape. Um, they're still hydrophilic. And then rarely do I go to a CTO heavy tip wire in the tibials. I'm already going anti-grade by that point. I'm sorry, retrograde by that point. I have such a short threshold as long as there's something to stick. Yeah. Um, we know from Fadi and you had C-top and all that, that not that you have to sit there and classify them, but you just know that you can predict how often you're going to go retrograde. So I think most yeah. of us, you know, you and me, we all switch to retrograde immediately. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I find one of the tips that I, I started doing kind of early on was, was I do, if, if the patient can remain still, you know, whether they're in sedation or, or GA is that you feel like a light roadmap. I mean, if with a stenotic lesion, if you can follow that channel yeah. without the wire knuckling or anything like that, you can get through it. But if it starts to knuckle and it's still, there's a patent channel, you'll probably flick something into that channel and then, Correct. you know, you're gone, you know. Well, I think the thing about moving is very important in these patients, you know, it's really tough and many yeah. people can't get general anesthesia. One thing that, you know, a great friend of our Zola kind of brought up to me and I've been trying out and we're testing it out in terms of a little study is if you do sedation with a nerve block, that helps a lot of these patients. A lot of them can't keep still because of pain, it's not going to really help your patient have restless legs or something like that. But a lot of patients that, you know, I've kind of adopted nerve blocks in these patients with sedation and they are pretty still for the most part without pain. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't tried it yet, but I know he's talked about it and, and yeah. you've had good results. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you have to, I think you have to have a little bit of selection um, yeah. in your patients and why they can't sit still, you know? It would be nice to, you know, maybe, maybe someone can post on social media or something, how to do it and, and, and their experience or, you know, I'm sure people are talking about it at conferences too. Yeah. So, okay. So you, you get across, say now we'll, we'll go to severely tonight first and we'll go to a CTO, but you have your wire across into the healthy DP segment or distal AT. It's your 014 wire. Then what, what, what devices are you, what, what are you going to next? Yeah. So. You know, that always becomes the, the, the topic of concern is, do we have the right devices right now? Um, it depends if you know, obviously we're talking about calcified vessels. The question is yeah. what, and you're luminal or mostly yes. luminal for the yes. most part, can you effectively change the compliance of the vessel? And we talked about medial artery calcifications. What can you do to improve your ballooning, reduce the significant dissection rate and also reduce emboli. And I think yeah. in that space, the ones that I personally have had the best success with have been with laser and with orbital. If I think atherectomy is valuable here. The downside is you have to remember this patient population, your runoffs are going to be potentially not great. 
Uh, right. They may have the SAD or the small arterial disease in the foot, which is kind of the bane of our existence for CLI and CLITA patients. Absolutely. So with any of these devices, no matter who tells you what, uh, we've all been there, um, some people more than others, where you do a quick little pass of whichever device and all of a sudden you're entering a little bit of a, a oh, you know, like a oh crap zone. Yeah. So if you're, if you feel you need to do it and you feel comfortable with it and you have enough experience, you know, I think atherectomy can have a role because we know that those vessels are rigid. It's not going to respond to balloons by itself, or at least we know the patency is not going to be great. So whatever we can do to adjunct that and to, because really tech tools wise, we don't have a ton of final treatment tools below the knee. We have balloons. We have some stents that we use that are not meant for it. And we have some stents that are finally going to be coming out that are meant for the tibials. But again, distal tibials, you know, planters, All that. we're not there yet. Maybe the different drugs may be helping us out in the future. So, okay. So say you do atherectomy or with or without atherectomy, you do orbital or laser. Then do you follow it with a conventional balloon, a, you know, a, there's all these type of different balloons out there, like the serenader and things like that, you know, that have yeah. different adjunctive techniques. And then there's intravascular lithotripsy, right? What, what, what else do you do after yeah. atherectomy? So IBL is the other one that I was going to mention in the toolbox, but, um, if I'm using a device, whether it's uh, lithotripsy or orbital or uh, laser, to me, that's a pretreatment. So if that's the case and I was able to pretreat, I'm going to use a, a high pressure conventional coronary balloon or whatever else we have. Got it. I try to use the longest length balloon. I tend to use like the Nanocross if it's a long segment because that thing is, is two different balloon sizes in one balloon and it's 21 centimeters. So that kind of helps. I think the number of times you limit uh, how many balloons and the length and the, the length of it in terms of the longest length of one balloon you get, you kind of get a maximum totally. effect at once because you have to worry about anticoagulation. You have to worry about how long a procedure is taking. All those things matter. If I'm not using atherectomy, then I think these other more aggressive balloons have a value. I'll use the scoring balloons as the sculpt, which you can take down to a two millimeter. The problem with that, and you mentioned serenader, I believe the current up to the smallest is four. So you can't take it all the way down yet, but those premises that you have some kind of metal nitinol cage or metal strips that, that pierce and increase your vessel compliance. So I think those have value, but the problem with this is that often you can't get those down until you pre-balloon. Their, their crossing profile is bigger, right? That's, yeah, that's bigger what I've seen. Yeah. So just because I didn't do atherectomy, I might have a tough time using one of these harder ones or these yeah. more aggressive balloons. So I have to pre-treat with another balloon um, yes. to get the effect. So, all these steps and then all these yeah. steps take time, which is, which is, you know, tough. And then you have the problem where you got a wire across, but you can't get even your support catheter across. Yeah. You can't get a balloon across. Yeah. So you're kind of in that predicament too. So that's the next thing you have to think about. Like, what's my next step there? So then, yeah, atherectomy may be your only way to do any kind of treatment. True. We've been all, all been in that. And then that's where orbital screams, you know, and, and laser is are yeah. great for. What about, so, and then, and then you mentioned IVL. It sounds like, you know, you're doing um, a stone removal and you're all, you know, my hospital actually, when, when we brought it up, we, they, they wanted me to talk to urology to get privileges. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, what are you talking about? You know, that's, that's so, incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Um, shows you, you know, what, what people think sometimes, but what, I mean, it's pretty cool. What, what, what's your experience of, of using that in the tibials? I think it's a, I think it's been a great addition because we have such a low toolbox in the below the knee space. So it's nice that, uh, you have a balloon that can do the same thing you're trying to do as atherectomy itself with less of the concerns of atherectomy in the sunset, less concern for emboli, 
Um, you're getting the compliance that you want. There's some limitation in terms of balloon length at the time, but they're working on that, I believe. Yeah. And again, the profile might be a little bit tough on exactly. some lesions because again, it's a little bit more robust than your smallest coronary balloons. I mean, some vessels we're dealing with, you, you have to take like a 1.5 in now there's 1.0 mill. You're talking about like a hair, a hair size balloon. Yeah. And you can't get that, you know, that step off to go through anything. You know? So I like the fact that you can use that, like the IBL balloon, you can use it for up to like, you know, 10 centimeters of length because you deliver the pulses and you can also determine where you want to apply the most of those pulses in terms of the segment of the vessel. So if you know that one area has far more disease, you, you know, by your passing of your catheters and wires and the imaging, then you can actually deliver more pulses there and, um, kind of deliver more of it there. So it's nice that you can specifically treat what you want to with it in a sense. So I think there's value there. Yeah. What about, and everyone always likes to talk about sizing of tibules. You know, we've talked about IVUS. You're not, you're not putting IVUS all the way down, not usually all the way down to the pedal. How are you sizing, you know, when you're talking about all these devices, whether it's conventional or scoring or this or that, how are you sizing your tibules? You know, I like, I, the, well, the beauty of this, I think we know this amongst our, our CLI friends, friends who do a, a lot of is everybody's a purist when it comes to talking, but I think in reality, <laughs> I think in reality, like, I mean, I, yes. I, I, we have people who say hundred percent, I have this every single yes. time, which is great. And that's something you can 100%. do and utilize. That's great. Yeah. I think what it's helped us understand is maybe we've been under treating, um, in the past. The way I look at it is maybe five, six, seven years ago, I was using, in the beginning, I was using probably very small balloons from the mid tibial down because yeah, oh, two, these are two small five, vessels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the proximal tibial, you use like a two, five and you kind of pat yourself on the back. But I, in my mind, mentally now, after we've done enough and we've used IVIS to yeah. learn and others, far smarter yeah. people have shown me, I'd say from nowadays, I say if I, I want a two millimeter, at least in the pedal, and then I want to get up to about a four, four and a half on the proximal tib. In most patients, now you may have to take some caveats for elderly females, some of the other patient demographics that, that may have smaller vessels, but I think in general, as we go, and if there's a question, you look at your angio, you look at your other vessels, you can look at the contralateral side or IVUS if you need to really confirm what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I just want to repeat that for our listeners. That is four to four and a half proximally in the tibias. I mean, people will, will think they won't even go above three or three and a half. So that, that, that is definitely larger. Well, think about it. I mean, we say pop used to be all, you know, mentally we say four and a half to five and a half, somewhere that people are considering five on average for pop. So yeah. to consider that you go from your P2, P3 to down to like a two and a half in the proximal tip. Doesn't make it, sense. It's a crazy taper. <laughs> That's probably right. not what it was like. And if you always look at those calcium on your, when you're doing the ballooning, you see the circle threshold calcium on your, on your spot image. You can always see the balloon is always so uh, small compared to the calcium itself. Oh you're, yeah. You're underside. You always can see that. And you're like, man, I'm really going wall to wall. But remember like <laughs> the wall is built with calcium. So if you can exactly, fix, if you could treat some of the calcium, you could expand that better. It's not elastic yeah. at that point yet, you know? Totally. And so when you do the post-plasty, I, mean, I guess what, what is your end point? Say, okay, fine. Of course the vessel looks great and clean. You've got more flow. You've got wound blush. What if you have, and especially in these calcific lesions, like a little dissection angiographically or on IVIS, how do you approach those? A little dissection is like a little pregnant, right? You have it, you have it. I think <laughs> every ballooning you do causes dissection. How relevant is it to your flow, to your hemodynamics in your vessel? That's kind of the question. I don't think we have a, an excellent predictor. I think everybody can do the eyeball test and say, ah, that's fine. And a lot of that's based on what time it is of the day, 
what you got left. You're like, oh, that, that's not significant. That's not flow limiting. I don't know how many people have decided what exactly contributes to flow limiting in some, some kind of like scientific sense. Yeah. What is yeah, exactly? Seems to be like a, like a gestalt, <laughs> like a, oh, the ocular <laughs> reflex, like, oh, okay, you know, I got, I got another case. I got a meeting to go to. That looks pretty good. <laughs> no, but I think, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, when you see a dissection, you know, a dissection, if yeah. you see it to me in the tibials, you have a lot less wiggle room to leave a dissection. Yeah. Because that's your outflow from everything else. When you have dissections yep. in the SFA, you can't necessarily leave those alone, but unless it's a major one, you have a lot more pressure head coming in. You have a larger vessel, you have more totally. room for that, but a tibial, that's literally, you just spent, you know, an hour and a half fixing a 25 centimeter occlusion and then leaving a dissection if you can avoid it, you know, so when your eyeball shows you the flow the you can see the contrast having like a differential flow or you throw an itis yeah. in there and you see the flap actually in the lumen. I think that's something that warrants treatment if you feel like you're, you're actually trying to reduce the number of times the patient comes back. Yeah. I think also the density, if you see the density of the contrast significantly different, you know, you might be catching the flap on FOSS, not, not, you know, yeah. perpendicular and that's significant. You'll see the flap, it'll either be a spiral or you'll see the top and bottom. If you had a, a, yeah. a CTO that you went, you know, entry, re-entry. And you said it too, you just spent an hour and a half. And this is what I tell all my younger guys too, who are, are, are doing PAD in my practice. It's just, you spent all this time, you went retrograde, you did all this and you have this result and you're like, ah, should I treat this? It looked, you know, <laughs> I'm like, that's the thing that's going to take this down. And it, it, by the time the patient leaves, you know, the recovery, you know, like, uh, treat it. You know, if you have, you have devices to treat it now. The question is, you know, is there a system to tell you this is significant? I don't, I don't think we have nailed it down no. yet. I mean, Ibis really can have you proof of why you did something else, but you know, when you know, you see the dissection and if you can't see it, then you should get some more experience looking at angiograms, but you can always see it, um, in these vessels. There's people who are saying, you know, if I see any dissection, that's going to, you know, we have Brian Fisher, fantastic friend of ours, amazing yeah. surgeon. He'll say, if you don't stent that dissection, you're doing a disservice. Yeah. And that's to each their own. I mean, but, uh, using prolonged balloon angioplasty, if you mm -hmm. feel that's your best bet using the balloon expandable stents, which is the current marketing, uh, stents that we have that are not meant for it, but we use it or tack depending on it. So I think we have ways to treat it. We don't have enough drug coated balloons to kind of maybe say that might help the dissection not become significant. I don't think that's the right way to go yet. Anyone doing like atherectomy for a, a dissection? I, I think I've heard people like throwing that out there. Uh, I've never tried that. Oh, I've know? never tried it. I feel yeah. like once you have a dissection, then you try to be more aggressive with that dissection. You may get into that abatitial problem, you know? Yeah. yeah. Just personal fear. And you mentioned tax too. I mean, uh, we've been trying them out and how have they been working in, in your you know, they're, they're IFU, they're, 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 you know, they're meant to go all the way down to the ankle if, I, if I'm, if I'm correct. I just, I haven't done that yet. And so my experience with that is limited. Interestingly enough, I think most of the dissections that you see that are seem to be pertinent are the ones you see in that proximal to mid tibial arteries. The nice thing about the tech, I think, is that you can, you can spot stent your spot, your spot treating, just like we talk about in trials with the SFA bailouts, you know, when you have a long lesion, can you treat the lesion, but spot stent where you need to, to me, this is kind of like a patchwork and fix only what you need to fix. Cause otherwise you're unnecessarily putting scaffold where you don't really need it. So being able to put something that conforms to whatever the vessel size is, that seems to make more sense, which is why we're waiting for the self-expanding tibial sense rather than what we have now. So these tacks are self-expanding. So they should go to the size of the vessel that you treated. And then also places like the AT bend, that's not a great area for sometimes stenting. It's a little tough, but you know, the tacks can lay down well there. 
So if I see flaps that have like a, you can see the segments that you actually need to tack, it's nice to be able to spot treat it rather than cover or treat unnecessary segments of it. Because you know that when you stent something, it's not like a one and done. It's going to be great. We know this from every part of the body we do it in, especially the tibials, putting more and more stuff in there is not going to be the answer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, we've been talking about severely stenotic lesions, but all of this stuff really applies to both, you know, CTOs after you cross and, and plasty or treat, then you get into this same discussion. For, for a totally occluded calcific lesion, is there, um, do you, and you're obviously not going luminal. Uh, if anyone says that they're going luminal, totally, <laughs> and, and more power to you, bro. Yeah. You're, you're obviously a subintimal or whatnot, extra luminal, but do you avoid atherectomy then? Do, as far as the algorithm we just discussed, everything else the same, but avoid atherectomy or you still do it? I don't think there's a hard and fast rule to avoid it completely. I think when you mm-hmm. go through a long CTO that you have an entry re-entry, I think those entry re-entries might be areas that if you have an experience, you might want to consider some atherectomy because those yeah. areas may be the hardest to get a vessel complete expansion. The subintimal space, it's a great space, but we know this from the SFA pop area. Yeah. When you have a heavy calcified occluded vessel, that subintimal space will expand nicely. It may not stay open. Um, unless it gets enough pressure through it, but, uh, but where you enter and re-enter, especially if I have to use like a, like a re-entry device into the tibial, that's going to be a tough spot of calcium. So it's, you're going to have like a entry calcium ring around it. So I think in those areas are ones I may consider atherectomy just because I know I need the vessel to be open there. Just like when you do a DVA, you need that connection to be open. Yeah. To stay yeah. open, not just from the blood pressure alone. So, your so though, yeah, I would, I wouldn't, I don't ever advocate. And I don't think you should uh, long segments of minimal atherectomy. I think that's maybe a little bit hazardous. Uh, more yeah. hard to you, I would, you know, I think directional that could be very dangerous in that entire space. But if you need to spot treat just to get your final treatment there, I think that's where the value goes. Yeah, and you've you've had awesome presentations at multiple conferences. I've seen of just like really really complex calcific tibial CTO recans. I mean, the, the techniques, and, and they're a little bit too advanced to talk about now, but I mean, putting retrograde balloons or snares and staring, I mean, these are all really good things that I encourage our listeners to, you know, go see one of these. You, know, you, you usually show some awesome case every time I've seen you talk. So thanks, Ben. You have, and I know you're working on a direct perineal re- retrograde, you know, recanalization. I mean, you, you've definitely done a lot in the tibial space anything down the line that you can think of, um, are worth talking about like tibials? Yeah, I think, um, the self-expanding stent, once we actually have it available, I think we'll have to see how that plays out. It seems like it's doing really well. We were part of the study and, you know, it was, you know, we're, oh, that's co- great. unfortunately COVID hit during one of yeah. them, but so that was a little difficult, but why, why has it been so long that, that a self-expanding stent has not been made for the tibia? It just makes no sense to me. I think that there's always a lag between demand and industry and connecting the dots. You know, I think uh, because we've all used the coronary drug eluding stents for so yeah. long and we said it's, it's been great, but now we understand that the infrapopliteal space is another whole sector that we need to address. That's true. And then, that is true. That is more recent. I mean, yeah. within the last probably 10 years, I mean. You know, within the last three years, we've been talking about pedal and all that, you know, yeah. below ankle. So, and then, um, right. the, uh, the other thing is the below the ankles coming too. We, we <laughs> still have a, that's even a harder area to deal with, but, uh, <laughs> but the, the other thing I'm wondering is, you know, there's studies now on serolimus braced, uh, drugs for below the knee, because oh, yeah. we know that, uh, the paclitaxel stuff below the knee had some issues and it got halted, but 
True. I think future BTK is a study looking at that with Limus-based drugs, because we know from the coronary experience. From the coronary, I mean, that's what we're, you know, we're using the balloon expandable sense and the Limus, they're all Limus, right? Yeah. So I think between dedicated tibial uh, scaffolds, maybe a different uh, drug-coated device or balloons, whatever. And then also, you know, we're still understanding the the DVA uh, space, yeah. the, the detour type of space for below the knee. I think those are kind of the things that are coming because we don't have, I don't believe there's a lot of options there, no matter what technology you come up with. So whatever we could do to do better with, with as we progress is all we can do right now. And then we have to remember that no matter what you do above the ankle is now going to be predicated on what's going on below the ankle. So just like, you know, you put a, a stent in the SFA, great, but what was the runoff for that thing to stay open? Whatever you do in the tibial space, you have to be cognizant of what the runoff is in the foot. That's going to be uh, one of the biggest rate limiting steps for whatever you do in the tibials as well. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, Kumar, this has been super educational. It's been awesome. Awesome, <laughs> I mean, man. It's I, always great. Again, you know, having you on the show is just, it's just great. It's a, it's a plethora of information, all the tips that we're learning. So thank you for being here. Thanks for answering all my questions. Thanks to <laughs> thanks to you guys. Thanks to Aaron. Thanks to Kale. Thanks to uh, you know Barraza, B Money, and uh, everybody else involved <laughs> in this. I mean, it's been great. Yeah. Well, no, you, we we look forward to having you on, and and we look forward to conferences coming back, seeing you in person. Um, oh. You know, there's lots of stuff coming up. I know you just probably came back from Viva, and we really look forward to just learning more. We have a lot more. A lot more. Speaking of learn, learns coming up for SIR. It's virtual. That's you know, right. Everybody attend. We got, we got, uh, I think Veeth is also coming up. ISA will be coming around. So, I mean, especially for the young, early career, young trainees, I mean, go to these things yeah. more for bouncing ideas off each other and hearing what's coming out. Cause it's going to start increasing rapidly what's coming out. And I think you got to stay abreast of it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I don't know how you take time to, to be deal with us with a thousand things you're doing here. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, in all serious, man, it's, it's freaking awesome. Keep on, keep on doing what you do. And, uh, we look forward to your fifth episode. <laughs> I can't wait. Love you. Know. <laughs> Great talking to everybody. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Zubi Syed, Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.